if you will, tonight to the Gospel of Matthew and to the fifth chapter. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we, uh, we want to live the kind of blessed life that Jesus describes here. We want to follow in the steps of your Son. We want to obey his teaching, and we want to trust in his name and his help and your mercy through his cross. And so accomplish things, these things, continue accomplishing these things in us as we look at these words tonight. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've just read, of course, the opening lines of that famous sermon of Jesus that's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. It spans most of these three chapters between Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and it is Jesus' most famous manifesto as to how his followers, his disciples, should live their lives in this world. So this is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If your eye Your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Ask and it will be given to you. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, and much, much more. It's a magnificent sermon and a magnificent way of life that Jesus describes here. And so much of what Jesus says in this sermon is actually counterintuitive to us, isn't it? So much of what he says goes against the grain of our fallen human natures. We wouldn't think these kinds of things up on our own, would we? Love your enemies? Treat people not the same way they treat you, but the same way you want them to treat you. Do not worry. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is not the standard fare of talk radio, is it? This is not the way the world thinks, and this is not the way we think either when we're left to our natural proclivities. So we mustn't leave ourselves to those natural tendencies, and we mustn't get our goals or our ethics either 
from the chatter around the lunch tables at work or from the music that pulsates through our earbuds or from the winsome prose of the pages of our magazines or from the various lifestyles portrayed on television, even when it's quote-unquote family-friendly. We must rather be constantly informed by this book, and we must often remind ourselves of the teachings Jesus sets forth in this sermon. There's a reason why it is so famous, and I'd encourage you in the days ahead, as I did last week with Genesis chapters 1 through 3, I'd encourage you to take some time and just read this entire Sermon on the Mount for yourself. Maybe a chapter a day, maybe less than that. And I'd encourage you not only to read it, but to begin immediately acting on what it teaches, even if it requires radical changes in your routine, your behavior, and so on. I commend to you, in its entirety, the Sermon on the Mount. But in the weeks ahead, as the Lord enables, we're going to confine ourselves just to this opening section, to these opening bullet points that have come to be known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, and so on. These things, too, run contrary to pop culture and conventional wisdom. And though the wisdom of these Beatitudes may seem a little more conventional to us, gathered as we are for a midweek church service, we still may find that in our actual living, we still have a long way to go in becoming whom Jesus would have us to be. Indeed, I suspect that most of us will find ourselves challenged and convicted at nearly every bullet point along the way in the weeks ahead. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, by the same title, puts the challenge to us like this. What is your heart set on as vital for your life and character? What eight things do you want to see developed in your life? Perhaps, he says, it would be a good idea for you to make a list. Does it compare favorably with what Jesus says? Does it include, he says, poverty of spirit, meekness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, a peacemaking spirit, and a willingness to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus? Or do you think that real blessing is really to be found elsewhere? Those are probing questions, aren't they? What goes on your list of qualities that you want to pursue in your life? And does it match what Jesus says here? And the questions that Ferguson asked there remind us that we should be, as I said, challenged and convicted by these beatitudes in the coming weeks. But then I also want us to see that we should not only be challenged and convicted, but also captivated and attracted by them as well. First of all, because each of these qualities is beautiful and attractive in and of itself. You think about people who are poor in spirit, people who are gentle, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on, and ask yourself if those aren't actually the people that you love being around. These things are attractive in and of themselves, but also we should be attracted by them, we should be wooed by them, we should be captivated by these beatitudes because each of them begins with the word blessed. This is the sort of life that is blessed by God, Jesus says. Poverty of spirit, mourning, gentleness, purity, and so on. True Christian living, Christ-like Christian living, comes, in other words, with the Lord's own approval. 
with his blessing, with his covenant grace and joy, as Ferguson puts it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as we'll see tonight in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is the truly blessed life. Not in learning to pray in such a way so as to unlock health, wealth, and prosperity. Not in having your best life now. No, the truly blessed Christian life is living after the Christ-like manner that Jesus describes in these Beatitudes and in receiving the spiritual blessings that accompany such a life. And the first blessed quality that Jesus commands and commends in his list is poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's just think tonight in a little more detail about this first of the eight Beatitudes, and then we'll come to the others, Lord willing, as the rest of the calendar year moves along. And let's begin looking at this first Beatitude with the simple question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does poverty of spirit mean? Well, let's think first of all very simply about what it means to be poor. To be poor means very simply to be without, to lack, to be in want, to have a shortage of something or another. Of course, we usually think of poverty in financial terms. Those whom we normally say are poor are those who lack financial wherewithal those who are without an adequate supply of money and thus also without the things that money can buy. That's generally what we mean when we think of poverty, poverty in material things. But we can also be poor in slightly less tangible ways too, can't we? We can be poor in education, we can be poor in manners, we can be poor in love, we can be lacking, we can be without in a number of different areas of our lives. And then we can and should be poor in spirit, which means on one level that we are doing without something. To be poor in spirit means to go without. To go without what? Well, to go without that pride, that haughtiness, that arrogance of spirit that is actually so characteristic of human nature. Just look at a two-year-old who's not getting his way, and you will see how self-centered and how conceited we human beings really are. We really do think that we're number one, and so it's not too difficult for us to look out for ourselves accordingly. But the call of God on our lives, the call of Christ in this first beatitude, is that we begin to do without in this realm of natural human pride, that we be poor in relation to this negative quality that is so innate to us, that we become poor in an area in which, sadly, we have no great lack by nature. But then there's a positive side as well. The positive side, I think, is even more to the point of what Jesus is saying, and it is this, that we should also say that the call of Christ in this verse entails that we begin to cultivate a spirit, a heart, an attitude, a disposition that realizes just how needy we are in all sorts of good categories in which we ought to be more rich and in which we're actually quite destitute by nature, categories of godliness and morality before the Lord. Does it make sense, the two different things I'm saying? On the one hand, we must become impoverished 
when it comes to the wicked and ungodly quality of pride, but spiritual poverty also means that we began to realize how poor we really are in good qualities, godly qualities, and we cultivate a poor spirit, a humble attitude that is actually in accordance with how needy we really are. Poverty of spirit means that we begin to think and act humbly, as humbly as our sinful characters demonstrate that we actually really are. At some point in your life, you may have known a person of relatively humble means or fairly homespun upbringing and etiquette, but who for some reason began trying to dress him or herself up as though they were quite well-heeled and quite well-to-do. And while this put-on may have appeared somewhat impressive to those in their sphere who also would like to have pretended to be part of high society, I'm fairly certain that those who do have financial means are not fooled or impressed by such people. And usually the folks from the old neighborhood who just really know and accept who they are have a good snicker at the wannabe rich people as well because people nearly always strike for themselves some quite foolish poses when they attempt to appear as though they had far more wherewithal than they actually possess. And I think that's how foolish we must look to God when we walk around pretending to be something we're not, pretending to be morally superior, pretending to have it all together. Because God knows what's beneath these garments that we've slapped on that fit so poorly and don't look right, and he's neither fooled nor impressed by our embarrassing attempts at gussying ourselves up. And he's certainly not impressed when we talk like the Pharisee who was so glad that he was not like other people, or when we act like the blessings in our lives have come to us because we are so spiritual, or so intelligent, or such good parents, or such hard workers. I don't know. What do you have, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not or had not received it? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's one of the great keys to an attitude of spiritual poverty, remembering that whatever you are is a gift. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, on the one hand, it means to be lacking, to be without, to be poor when it comes to how much pride you have stored away in the bank account of your heart. But then it also means to realize how poor you are in those categories of godliness and morality which ought to be stored up within you, but of which there is a woeful shortage in your life. And then to begin to think and act like someone who knows how poor he or she really is. And you know, you can and should be poor in spirit, even if God makes you rich in money or education or giftedness or what have you. And even if you are better off than some people when it comes to godliness and character and morality, you can still be poor in spirit because if you're truly godly, you'll recognize that all your progress has all been a gift from God, and therefore your pride will not be fed even an ounce by your spiritual attainments. In other words, you can be rich in God's blessings, but still poor in spirit. Indeed, the word spirit really refers to attitude rather than attainments. 
Poverty of spirit is an attitude of humility, even if our attainments have been significant. Let me flesh that thought out with you by giving you, in the second place, two examples of the poor in spirit. So we've talked a little bit about what it means to be poor in spirit, but now let's look at a couple of cases in point. The first example I want you to think about comes in the person of King David as we find him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7 is the chapter in which David proposes to build a temple for the Lord, a permanent house in place of the tent in which the Ark of Covenant, the Covenant, has been dwelling since the days of Moses. And God's response, you may remember, is to tell David that it was not going to be David who would build him a temple, but David's son. And God's response was also to inform David that he, God, would actually build a house for David. Not a physical house like David wanted to build for him, but a dynasty that would endure forever. And there's a preparation there, a promise there of the coming Messiah. And what is David's response to that blessing, that promise of God? Does he say, well, you know, I thought this might be coming, Lord. I mean, this is kind of what I expected, being a man after your own heart and everything. Uh, I mean, I'm far more righteous than that old rascal Saul was, and I'm well on my way to writing the most enduring book of religious verse ever to be published among the race of men. No, no, that's not what David said. When God promised David an eternal dynasty, his response in 2 Samuel 7.18 was to say, if I can... Pull it up. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? I'm going to bless you, David. I'm going to make an enduring dynasty for you, David. And David's response is, who am I that you should do that for the likes of me? Now, do you see what's happening here? According to the sinful and backwards thinking of humanity, if there was anyone who deserved God's blessing, if there was anyone who deserved such a promise as God gives in 2 Samuel 7, it would have been King David, a man after God's own heart, and who had proved that fact on many occasions through the years. And if there was anyone who deserved the praise of his fellow men, it was this David as well, a mighty warrior, an accomplished musician, one of the greatest poets who ever lived, a king sitting on his throne. And yet David's response is not to claim any of that. He doesn't thank God that he's not like other people. He doesn't tell God, well, it's about time after all I've been through. He doesn't murmur because God rejects his building program. He doesn't publish a series of tweets congratulating himself on his most recent achievement hashtag with the word humbled to make himself feel a little bit less braggadocious none of that David's response to God's blessing of him is to say who am I how can this be happening to me I haven't done anything to deserve such good treatment and yet you've blessed me anyway and that is what it looks like to be rich in God's blessings but still poor in spirit David had not forgotten where he came from, from following the sheep in a little know-nothing town, the youngest of his family, and then hiding in caves and pretending to be a madman in order to keep himself alive against his foes. David knew that he wasn't some born hero groomed from the womb for greatness, but just a humble sinner who had been promoted to greatness by his God. And he is a marvelous example of what it means to be poor in spirit 
Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? But then having looked at David as an example of poverty of spirit, we need also to look at David's son. And I don't mean Solomon, I mean his greater son, Jesus. If King David had every reason, humanly speaking, to think of himself as great, well then Jesus of Nazareth had far more, didn't he? David, yes, killed a lion and a bear with his own hands and a giant with a sling and a stone. But you might remember that Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed 5,000 people with them. And Jesus walked on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus made the wind and the waves to obey his voice immediately. And Jesus raised a little girl from the dead with just two words. And Jesus did a lot more than just those things. And yes, David won many battles. David slew his tens of thousands, as the women sang. But Jesus went nose to nose with the devil himself after 40 days of fasting in the desert. And yes, David built Jerusalem into a great city, and he would have built a marvelous temple as well had God permitted him. But Jesus, we read a few moments ago in the book of Colossians, is spoken of like this. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. And so, while David could remember where he'd come from and remember the humility of his background and recognize the reality of his own sin, even spite of all the achievements and godliness that he had attained, he could remember those things and still have many obvious reasons to say, Who am I, O Lord God? But Jesus wasn't like that, was he? Now, to be sure, he too was born in the little town of Bethlehem and in circumstances far more humble even than those of David and his upbringing in Nazareth wasn't any more impressive. But Jesus wasn't originally from Nazareth, was he? And he wasn't from Bethlehem either. Jesus, in fact, wasn't originally from anywhere in the proper sense of the term because Jesus is very God of very God. And where is God from? God's not from anywhere. God simply is And so Jesus couldn't look back with David to some humble origins to keep him tethered to humility during the days of his earthly ministry. And neither could he look into the recesses of his soul to see, like David could, that being a man after God's own heart did not mean that such a man after God's own heart is actually without sin. Jesus couldn't say that either because he actually was and is without sin. And so Jesus didn't have any of the default reasons for humility that David had and that you have and that I have. Jesus doesn't have to ask God how it could possibly be that God chose him to reign on his throne because Jesus, as the holy God and the perfect man, actually deserves to sit there. And yet... Here he is lying on a bed of straw in a barnyard feed trough inside a little lean-to outside the Motel 6 in Bethlehem. And here he is sweeping up Joseph's sawdust day after day in the woodshop in Podunk, Nazareth. And here he is being spat upon, beaten, mocked, whipped by people who ought to be doing nothing but kissing his feet, and he just takes it. And he doesn't assert his divinity. He doesn't assert his human rights. He doesn't call on angels for help. And then here he is hanging on a cross because that's where his father told him to go in order to save proud sinners like you and me. 
And this Jesus is committed to doing whatever his father says to the point of death, Paul says. This is poverty of spirit. Here in Jesus is the high water mark of what he is commending in this first beatitude. And the Apostle Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I say to you, blessed are those who follow him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So then what does poverty of spirit mean? On the one hand, to be lacking, to be without, to be poor when it comes to how much pride you have stored away in your heart. And then also, on the other hand, to realize how poor you actually are in those categories of godliness and morality, which are good things, which ought to be stored up in your heart, but which you have a woeful shortage of. And then to think and act like someone who really knows how poor you are. And then also, as we've seen in the examples of David and Jesus, poverty of spirit means still being humble, still having an attitude of humility, even when you are indeed anointed and blessed by God. And now in the third place, let me give you some applications of poverty in spirit. Talked about the meaning of poverty in spirit, two examples of poverty in spirit, and now thirdly, some applications as to how this trait should work itself out in the life of a Christian. And let me give you seven of them with only brief explanations. Seven ways that you should be working out poverty of spirit in your life. Number one, be slow to self-promote and quick to deflect praise. Slow to self-promote and quick to deflect praise. We live in a culture where it is considered normal to brag, whether it be in terms of our resumes or our lunch conversation with our coworkers or on social media or in the display of our trophies and degrees on the wall or in casually mentioning how much we put into the offering plate so that people will know or whatever it may be. These sorts of things are considered normal in our culture, self-promotion. But they don't smell very much like poverty of spirit, do they? Better would be the attitude of Joseph, who, when his ability was recognized by no less than Pharaoh himself, simply replied, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And that should be our cry in a world that's constantly crying out, look at me. The cry of the disciple of Jesus is, it is not in me, God. Be slow to self-promote and quick to deflect praise to God. Number two, be slow to criticize and quick to praise others. One of the heights of our arrogance, and I know this by personal experience and personal failure, one of the heights of our arrogance is when we are constantly critical of other people. Whether our spouses, our kids, our co-workers, our fellow drivers, people who work for us, the linebacker who missed the tackle, whoever it may be, as though we ourselves always get everything right. And this is patently not poverty of spirit, is it? Poverty of spirit lends itself more to praising others for their successes 
than it does to disparaging them for the areas in which they don't measure up. Poverty of spirit lends itself to thanking people for what they are doing for you instead of criticizing them for what they're not. So be slow to criticize and quick to praise others. Number three, poverty of spirit means being slow to complain and quick to give thanks to God. We talked about others, and now we're talking about how we respond to God. Slow to complain and quick to give thanks to God. When we complain about the weather or our lots in life or our finances or our marriages or whatever it may be, what we're really doing is telling God that he's either been unfair or unkind or inattentive. That's what our murmuring says to him when we, on one hand, profess that God is in control of everything that happens and he's working it all out for our good and then we complain about what he's working out. It's quite an arrogant thing to do, isn't it? To say, God, you're really not getting this right. And so we need to get in the business of thanking him. And uh, as the hymn writer says, counting blessings rather than filing complaints. So be slow to complain and quick to give God thanks. Fourth, be slow to excuse your sin and quick to confess it. Slow to excuse sin and quick to confess sin. And this goes for our relationship with God as well as with other people. We already said one of the heights of human arrogance is how eagerly we criticize other people, but another of those ugly mountain peaks of pride is how ready we are to make excuses for our sins or to cover them up or to tell bold-faced lies about what really happened or to rationalize our misdeeds as not being that bad after all or just to tell those whom we've hurt that they shouldn't really be quite so offended. And none of that is poverty of spirit, isn't it? Is it? It doesn't fool God. It doesn't fool thinking people any more than the obvious lies that your children tell about why the cookie jar is broken fool mom. It doesn't work. Much better is just to admit your folly, seek forgiveness from God and from others, and then let the chips and the difficulties that your sin breaks off fall where God sees fit. So be slow to excuse your sin and quick to confess it. Number five, be slow to demand your rights and quick to serve others. Slow to demand your rights and quick to serve other people. Now here's another area in which our culture exacerbates a sinful tendency that's already in our hearts, namely the idolization of our rights. Now am I saying that we don't have any rights? No. Both the image of God that's written on our souls and the various laws that are written across our land say that we do have rights. But a person who is poor in spirit will not spend his whole life always demanding his or her rights. Not because he doesn't have those rights, but because there are more important things to be contending for. Like the rights of other people who are less fortunate than ourselves. And like the mercy of God towards the marginalized or the preaching of the gospel to a world that needs God's grace far more than I need equal protection under the law. Indeed, sometimes in our pressing for our rights, we actually lose that gospel testimony, either because our vitriol about personal freedoms discredits it, or because we simply become known for our political message more than our gospel message, or because we ourselves lose the plot and actually begin to make the political message the main thing. 
And all the while, we are fighting for our rights. Others who have far fewer rights than we do continue to suffer and to go without the gospel. And so we must be slow to demand our rights and quick to serve other people if we are to be poor in spirit. Number six, be slow to rejoice in your achievements and quick to rejoice in the simple gospel. Slow to rejoice in your achievements, but quick to rejoice in the simple gospel. Jesus spoke to his disciples along these lines on one occasion in Luke 10 when they had returned to him from an incredibly successful short-term mission trip. Lord, they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And some of you will remember Jesus' response. He said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, of course, there is a reason to rejoice that the name and power of Jesus subdues evil spirits. There is a reason to rejoice that the name and power of Jesus saves sinners, lends power to sermons, and so on. And I don't think Jesus is saying that we shouldn't rejoice ever in the triumphs that he gives when we go out bearing his name. I don't think he's saying that you should never come back from a short-term mission trip and there be a presentation to tell what God did. But perhaps, perhaps he recognized in this particular instance that the disciples maybe were emphasizing how the demons are subject to us rather than how the demons are subject to us in your name. They said both, but perhaps Jesus knew their hearts and knew that they were really impressed with us. And perhaps he was warning them how quickly our spiritual achievements can become about us, as though we really deserve the praise. And so he redirects his followers' attention here away from their accomplishments and back to the simple fact that they have been saved by grace. That's the thing to rejoice over, he says. And so sometimes we should be rejoicing that the evil spirits bow to the name of Jesus and that people come to Christ in the name of Jesus and what happens on the mission trip and so on and so forth. But sometimes we need to be slow to rejoice in our spiritual achievements and quick to revel in the simple gospel so that we remember that it is about what Christ has done for us, far more than what we have done for him. And on that note of the simple gospel, let me say in the seventh place, still under this third main heading of applications, that to be poor in spirit means to be desperate for this simple gospel. Number seven, be desperate for the simple gospel. If we do realize just how spiritually needy we really are, just how far we fall short of God's glory, just how impoverished we are morally and spiritually, well, then we will never grow tired of hearing again and again the same gospel that some of us learned as children. It's not to say we need to hear sermons on John 3.16 every week, but the point is when the word of God is preached, whether from Matthew or Romans or Ezekiel or Judges or Genesis or Revelation, or any book in between, we should find ourselves longing for the preacher to get to the part about Jesus, about God's mercy in the gospel, about the hope of forgiveness, and about simple faith in the person and work of Christ. Because as poor, needy sinners, that is what we need most.
Let me come in from mowing the lawn in the heat of July and let there be a whole delicious meal on the table before me, and I'll eat the entire meal, but I will reach first every time for the beverage. I'll reach first every time for the sweet tea or the lemonade because that's what I need most as a thirsty man. And when we are poor in spirit, we become thirsty for the gospel, for all of God's word, but especially for the cool streams of the gospel to slake our thirst and to satisfy our needy souls. So there are seven applications, seven portraits, if you will, of what it looks like to be poor in spirit and to grow in that poverty. And rather than repeat them, I simply want to move on to my final main heading, which is this. I want us to think about the blessing that comes with poverty of spirit. All these beatitudes come with a blessing. In fact, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, Sinclair Ferguson points out that the main thing is not the qualities that we obtain. The main thing is the blessing that God promises to his covenant people who live in this way. And so we mustn't leave without thinking about the blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that may sound strange to you at first. It should, perhaps, on the surface, because while the rest of the Bible teaches that heaven is unearned, that salvation is by grace, that we cannot deserve eternal life, this verse seems to be saying that heaven is some kind of reward for having a humble spirit. That may be how you read it at first, at least. Indeed, it's even a little more strange-sounding because this whole idea of having a poor spirit is a recognition that you don't deserve anything from God's hand except His judgment. But here is Jesus telling us that if you realize just how patently you cannot earn heaven, that you can actually end up getting to heaven by realizing that you're unable to get there on your own. It's confusing if you think about it. Maybe it's just confusing if you listen to me think about it. But I think it's worth exploring for a few moments at least how Jesus can speak of heaven as being God's blessing upon those who are poor in spirit, and yet how it can also be true that heaven is not earned by our poverty of spirit. The verse means what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not written the other way around. It doesn't say, in other words, those who are blessed to go to heaven, those who are saved by grace, will also be blessed with poverty of spirit. That's true, of course, but that's not how Jesus says it here. This verse is phrased in such a way that heaven is bestowed upon those who are poor in spirit. And so what gives? How do we square this doctrine with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone? How do we reconcile this verse with the idea that we're not saved by anything that we are or anything that we do? Well, there are a couple things to say here. The first is simply that far from being a work that earns heaven, poverty of spirit is actually just a God-given trait that makes it possible for you to receive heaven as a free gift. In other words... It's precisely the person who is poor in spirit, the person who is humble, the person who knows that she deserves nothing from God's hand. It's precisely this person who is ready to abandon her works and abandon her self-righteousness and run to Jesus and trust in his merits in place of her own. And conversely, 
The proud person, the person who's not poor in spirit, the person who's always excusing her sins or downplaying them or totally oblivious to how bad they really are, this person will never come to Jesus and trust God's grace because she's quite convinced that either that she's good enough or that she's not really concerned with all these spiritual matters in the first place. And a person like that won't ever seek salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, unless she is brought by an act of God's sovereign mercy to see her sin and her neediness, unless she is made poor in spirit. And so while it is true that poverty of spirit does not earn salvation, it is also true that it is necessary in our coming to Christ. Just like faith, while it does not earn our salvation, is a necessary part of it. Indeed, Arthur Pink described poverty of spirit as the negative side of faith, or we might say the other side of the coin of faith. And then he says this, Poverty of spirit is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, emptying the heart of self that Christ might fill it. Poverty of spirit is the spirit emptying the heart of self that Christ might fill it. And that's a good definition and a good explanation of why poverty of spirit is necessary for salvation. And yet, how we can say that we are saved by Christ and not ourselves or anything that we are or do. Poverty of spirit is the spirit emptying the heart of self that Christ might fill it. It's not as though, in other words, if we're just humble enough, if our spirits are just poor enough, then God will pay back our humility with the wages of eternal life. No. It is rather simply that poverty of spirit is a necessary God-given trait that enables us to admit that we can only have eternal life by grace and that frees us to lay hold of that life by faith in Christ. Poverty of spirit is the spirit emptying the heart of self that Christ may fill it. And if even that sounds like we can still contribute something to our own salvation by becoming poor in spirit, maybe it's not a work, but I'm still contributing something to my salvation, let me just remind you that God is the one who does this humbling. Both faith and repentance are granted to us, the New Testament says, not worked up by us and not innate to us. And the same is true with the poverty of spirit that accompanies and feeds both repentance and faith. God is the one who, in the miracle of the new birth, brings men low and shows them their poverty. And when a man's heart has been made new by God, that newly humbled, teachable, needy heart will reach out to Christ, first thing, trusting in his righteousness and not in its own merits and not even in its own humility of spirit. And so there's a sense in which poverty of spirit is a prerequisite for heaven, not as a work or disposition that earns eternal life, but as a God-given change of heart that enables us to cast aside any idea of earning heaven and lay hold of it instead by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, none of that is to say that poverty of spirit, because it's given by God in the new birth, does not also need to be cultivated in us beyond that initial humbling by which God brings us to Christ. Of course we need to cultivate it, and the applications I gave a few moments ago were all along these lines. 
But all that I've just said is to say that while it's true that poverty of spirit is prerequisite for heaven, it is not true that it contributes anything to our salvation or earns it in any way. So with that theological tangle, I hope untied just a bit, we have to let the verse stand as it is written. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When God humbles your heart, when he truly brings you to see your neediness and to trust no longer in yourself, when he brings you to seek with Paul a righteousness that is not your own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the result is that you become a citizen of heaven, of that place where there is no more sin and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more temptation to promote yourself or demand your rights or criticize other people or complain about your circumstance or cover up your sins or anything else because there the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be all in all and there you will be truly happy and fully humble and completely holy. And for the sake of having that home, it is well worth it that God should humble you here. So ask him to do it. Some of you who have never truly come to the end of yourselves, never been able to admit that you're not as good as you think you are, never been humbled to the place of receiving God's salvation as a completely free gift, paid in full by the blood of Jesus, to which you have not, cannot, and need not add even one Lincoln penny or one ounce of your own morality, if that is you, ask God to humble you at the foot of the cross even tonight so that you may come to him through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the rest of you who have been humbled, who have received Christ, who have been bought by his blood, and who are going to heaven by God's grace, ask God to continue humbling you and making you more and more fit for the home that he is preparing for you on high. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.